got a really nice email that I wanted to share with you from a guy named Dan in Mississippi. And Dan says that uh, his brother Sam turned him on to my music and also turned him on to this show. And that we met at a house concert in Pasadena, Texas. And I remember that. The email says, I listened during my 30-minute commute to a manufacturing plant in Brandon, Mississippi, where I drive a forklift. I'm 41. They're all really good, and I've learned so much while being very entertained. However, the Jim White Part 1 is my favorite. The end is so inspiring. What a story with such emphasis on redemption. That's what I'm talking about, man. It just resonated with me and really launched my resolve into the next level. You see, I'm a drug addict. I'm currently holding on to 13 months totally freaking clean. Thank you. I also suffer from mental illness, which was exponentially intensified while I was using slash not taking psych meds. Going home to die. Been there. To hear him talk about riding that tour bus through Pensacola and how he felt touched me to the core. His honesty and articulation regarding this subject is the best I've ever digested. I've digested a lot. Thank you for giving a damn. God bless you, Otis. One brother to another, Dan. Man, Dan, thank you for the kind words. It's beautiful. I don't know what to say other than be strong and uh, and give your brother Sam a hug and tell him I said hey. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ken Sanders. Ken is a bookstore owner, a writer, a publisher. He's the rare books expert on Antiques Roadshow. And he was also close personal friends with Edward Abbey. You can find out everything you need to know about Ken at kensandersbooks.com. About 25 years ago, I found a book called The Fool's Progress in a thrift store in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I took it home and read it and just fell in love with it. And I've been a huge fan of Edward Abbey ever since then. And he's one of my favorite writers. Well, I was recently in Salt Lake City and I had met Ken and found out that he was friends with Abbey. And he was nice enough to agree to share some stories and some memories about Edward Abbey. We met up at his bookstore. It's Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. Just a great old bookstore. Beautiful place. Kind of place you could get lost in for hours. We were just about to head over to Ken's house to record this. And in walked Doug Peacock, who was uh, Edward Abbey's old friend. And he was the inspiration for the Hey Duke character in the Monkey Wrench Gang. We sat there and talked to him for a while and, and heard great stories. But we finally went over to Ken's house and browsed through his thousands of albums 
all the vinyl that he has. Just a, an amazing collection of a lot of things. But we sat down at his kitchen table, and he shared a lot of great stories. Here's Ken Sanders. I'd been a big fan of Edward Abbey's probably ever since shortly after Desert Solitaire was published in 1968. And of course, it's about Southern Utah and his, his time there uh, back in the 1950s when he was a part-time seasonal park ranger. Arches was a monument then, not a national park. Between that time and in 1975, he published his other seminal work, The Monkey Ranch Gang. That was in 75, and about that time, I, with two partners, uh, we turned an old hippie head shop in Salt Lake called the Cosmic Airplane, that's still well known in these parts, uh, into a, I, I created a whole bookstore. We had a jewelry store, a record store, so a lot of new and used music. Uh, we had a head shop, of course, a lot of drug paraphernalia in those days, and we had this, the only alternative bookstore in Utah. People would come from a tri-state area to shop there. It became a legendary store here. And one day, uh, Edward Abbey walked into the store, and I immediately recognized him, and I immediately took him into the back and asked him to sign my first editions of his various books. And while he was doing so, I started lecturing him on this odious habit of uh, Hayduke and company littering the highways with beer cans. <laughs> Despite that uh, beginning, Ed and I went on to become pretty good friends, and we had a lot of uh, adventures, shall we say, over the years, some involving uh, wilderness and uh, conservation issues. And uh, in later years, in the 1980s, we used to do a lot of, we used to do a lot of river trips down the Green Colorado River. Edward Abbey isn't a Westerner. He's, a, he's from Appalachia. He, he was born near the town of Home, Pennsylvania. He was uh, a soldier, a military police in World War II. And after he got out of the military, he hitchhiked across the West and to the West. He ended up being a graduate student at the University of New Mexico, where his first book, the long out of print Jonathan Troy, was his master's thesis. He became the editor, briefly, <laughs> of the literary magazine at UNM called The Thunderbird. And in the debut issue under his editorship, he published an essay inside called Some Implications of Anarchy that uh, encouraged the students back in 1951, think the Korean War, to uh, resist the draft and burn their draft cards. It was not very popular at that time. <laughs> On the cover of the magazine, he published the famous quotation, man shall not be free until the last general is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. And he attributed it to Louisa May Alcott. The dean seized the issue. They destroyed them. Abbey was sum summarily dismissed from his editorship, and UNM wouldn't see a literary magazine for another decade after that. So I think Ed would have 
concluded that was a very successful run. The vision I have of him is a very, very prickly character. He could be a very sweet man in person. Um, he didn't tolerate fools easily. And if you want to know what he thought about things, I think the single best thing you could read is an obscure essay that no one seems to know about in his last collection of essays called One Life at a Time, Please, 1988. And it's an essay called uh, A Writer's Credo. And boy, he tears other writers a new one in that essay. I think it's one of the most important things he ever wrote, including Desert Solitaire and The Monkey Ranch Gang. Ed Abbey hated the idea of a book becoming a classic because Ed's definition of a classic was a book that everybody knew and talked about and nobody read. No one ever took it off the shelf. Well, both Des Solitaire and Monkey Ranch, they didn't sell out their first printings back in the day. They were remaindered. But to this day, both of them are in the multi-million number of copies of sales, and they live, and his words live, and his writings live, particularly among young people, high school, college-aged, although he's still a heck of a lot better known in the West than he is in the, in the East. See, out here, we live here in Salt Lake City. You know, right immediately to our east as we sit are the Wasatch Range. They go up to, uh, you know, over 12,000 feet, and they're more properly the western terminus of the Rocky Mountains. 500 miles the other side of us, out in the plains, is Denver, Colorado, and uh, the eastern terminus of the so-called Shining Mountains, as they were called in the 19th century. To the immediate west of us, not 15 miles out there, if you look out those windows right now, you could see both Antelope and Stansbury Islands out in the Great Salt Lake. And there's 100 plus miles of salt flats out there and Great Basin Desert. That it's, If you go wandering out there, you, one, you can see the curvature of the earth. Two, there's places where I could take you where I could show you the Donner Party wagon tracks still stuck in the mud. Lastly, we have what's called the Colorado Plateau. So in addition to the Rocky Mountains and the High Uintas and the big mountainous country here, the Uintas, uh, King's Peak is uh, 13,428 feet. The Great Basin and the terminating in the Great Salt Lake, which is a dead sea, all of the rivers run into it, but there's no outlet. So it's literally a dead sea. Its, it's average depth is only 18 feet, but it's huge and it's so salty, so much saltier than the ocean that nothing but brine shrimp can grow in it. But then, then to complete the landscape here, the whole southern portion of the state and parts of Colorado, a little bit of New Mexico, and down into the uh, Magoyan Rim and Grand Canyon country of Arizona is the Colorado Plateau and the Water Pocket Fold, and it creates what we call out here standing up country, the Slick Rock, the Red Rock, where the mountains down there are 10 and 12,000 foot high, but they're plateaus. They're, they're not mountains in a traditional sense with peaks. They're big, uplifted slabs of land that go high, high up in the sky. And it's all vertical country. And you, to this day, 
you can get lost there. The last named river, the Dirty Devil, and the last named mountain range in the lower 48 states, the Henry Mountains, were discovered by the John Wesley Powell expedition down the Green and Colorado, or the Green and the Grand and the Colorado Rivers back in the 19th century. Two of his greatest works, Des Solitaire and Monkey Ranch, were are set in, in within the state of Utah. This this land the landscape, the arid lands, had a huge impact on his life and he never ever left them. Philosophy and classical music were two of Edward Abbey's biggest loves. I was always curious whether he was much of a music fan in any way. Only of classical music. Once, when I, at some point, I I used to have an old 54 Chev pickup truck painted flat black that I drove around. At one point in the mid to late 80s, I picked up a newer vehicle that had a cassette player in it. And (laughs) I think down on the San Juan River country, one time I popped in either a Jefferson airplane or a Country Joe and the Fish tape in. Holy mother of God. (laughs) That didn't last long. And when he finally got done cussing me out, I never, ever put anything in that tape player when I was with Edward Abbey other than classical music ever again. What was his go-to? Was it Wagner? Uh, He preferred the B composers, Beethoven, Bach, Bruckner. And, of course, in Edward Abbey's mind, Charles Ives will never die. That was his favorite 20th century composer. Uh, He he really did, if if a composer's name started with B, uh, those were his favorites. I knew Robert Crumb and some of the uh, Zap comics and underground comic book artists from the 60s and the 70s. I used to be fairly good friends with Spain Rodriguez. Uh, he did for my old cosmic airplane. Spain did a, I got a lot of them to do bookmarks for me. But Spain's was so filthy and obscene that I never, ever to this day dared ever print bookmarks up with it. <laughs> What did I expect, right? <laughs> and I knew Crumb peripherally in those days, but uh, I, I tracked him down when he was still in Winters, California, many, many years ago, and just naively asked him if he would illustrate it. And I got a very polite but prompt no. I spent that this was in the late 70s, early 80s. I can't remember exactly. I spent years commissioning other artists, but I could just I could just see Robert Crumb's exaggerated cartoony style in my mind's eye working for the Monkey Ranch gang. Because it the prose is an exaggerated comedic style over the top. And I could see that marriage. It's the only one of Ed Abbey's books that you could ever ask Crumb to illustrate. Desert Solitaire would have been a disaster. Finally, genius that I am was, I sent him a paperback copy of the book. Once he had read The Monkey Wrench Gang, I wouldn't even, I'd offered him a lot of money by then to do it too. He would have done it for free. He would call me up on the phone and say things like, in that novel, The Monkey Wrench Gang by Mr. Abbey, the characters go out and do this, that, and the other, speaking of their and ecotage, environmental sabotage, you know, chopping down uh, 
billboards and destroying bulldozers, etc. He said, are there actually people in real life that do those sorts of things that are depicted in Mr. Abbey's novel? Cromwell can be a very, very formal person. And I said, yes, Mr. Crumb, there are, and they do. <laughs> he loved it. He just couldn't wait. It got pretty testy. Abby, I had to sell Ed on the idea. He didn't like, you know, again, he, he was not a, a Robert Crumb underground comics fan, not his Malou. Uh, and we had some pretty tense moments over Robert's depictions of Bonnie Abzug in the book. Because... Uh, it's well known that Robert likes rather full-figured women, and his initial depictions of Bonnie didn't go over well with Ed, so I had the delicate job of trying to get Robert to redraw Bonnie. Uh, he, he, Ed Abbey described her in a letter to me as a, a combination of a young Elizabeth Taylor and Greta Garbo. Back in those days, we published, I published the book in 1985, Moab was still kind of a backwater then. It was kind of le leftover uranium miners and kind of burnout desert rats and a lot of ranchers and miners, uranium miners. It wasn't the god-awful hell that it's become today with wall-to-wall -wall mo uh, motels and chain restaurants. Oof. It's, uh, I love the country, but I don't like the town. My friends won't like to hear that, but it's true. So we held an autograph party at Ken Slight's old bookstore on Main Street. Ken Slight was one of the Abbey's pals uh, that was the inspiration for the seldom seen Smith character in the book. And so we thought it was fitting to hold it at his bookstore there. This was before... Or no, he and his wife, Jane Slight, had just purchased the Pack Creek Ranch in the early 80s, but they they were still had the bookstore in Moab. And they agreed to cook a, a big dinner, and we'd reserved the uh, group campsite up at uh, Arches Park. So we had the signing at the bookstore. Later that night, we had the, the feast up at Arches in the park, and oh my stars and whiskers, did we create a problem. About 50 people had been invited and about 500 showed up. We created a traffic jam. It totally gridlocked the one road into the park. And boy, howdy, were the rangers not happy with us. <laughs> the media came out of the woodwork. We had television stations, newspapers, magazines from all over the country uh, filming Trying to, and finally, I just, Ed and I's old buddy, uh, Ernie Bulow out of Gallup, New Mexico, uh, went into town and got some lunch fixings, and I spirited, I just left it. People Magazine was there. Time Magazine was there. It was insanity. I felt badly, so I whisked them away, and we went to the Fiery Furnace parking lot, which now you can't park there because it's so crowded. And that day, those days, it was deserted. And we just disappeared in the Fiery Furnace and ate lunch together, and then we were going to go on a, rock, uh, a walk. We were, gonna, we were going to go on a walk in the fiery furnace with Abby and Crumb and Ernie and me. And Ernie makes me look like a little guy, which I'm not, <laughs> um, since this is radio. But Ed begged off because he was actually playing hooky. He was supposed to be up at Montana State and delivering a speech and doing some 
classroom stuff. They spent two frantic days looking for him before I put him on a plane to go there eventually. So he needed, he begged off to write the speech, which would later become Dead Horses and Sacred Cows, in which he goes up to the lectern in Montana and he's borrowed some six shooter from somebody up there and he waves it all around and slams it down on the, the lectern. And he says, there'll be a question and answer session after my remarks, if there are any questions. And then he proceeded to deliver a speech that, well, let's just say it wasn't very flattering to the ranching community. He said, how smart could a fellow be that spends the better part of his last lifetime contemplating the posterior end of a cow, or words to that effect. <laughs> but Robert and Ed got along famously. They were like Mutt and Jeff, you know, because Ed's this big, lanky, about 6'5", willowy guy, and Crumb, Crumb's in his little Homburg hat and his, his shiny shoes and his vest and his white shirt. And so Ernie and I, take Crumb through all these narrow, slick rock fissures and passages of the fiery furnace. And at some point, uh, Crumb's in front of us, and we hear him talking. And we come out of this fissure, and there's kind of this opening. And standing on this sloping piece of slick rock is like kind of this young punk kind of climbing couple, young woman in her 20s and a guy with her. And she's frozen to this rock. And, and we've overheard Crumb say, there you are. Thank goodness we found you. We've been looking for you all day long. And he's sitting there wagging his finger at it. Your mother wants you to call home right now. And then pop, he's gone in the fissure. And this woman, as we pop out, we've been listening to this. This woman is standing frozen to the slick rock, staring at the space where our Crumb used to be. And to this day, she doesn't know who that was, that crazy <laughs> coot in the fiery furnace. <laughs> we, we catch up with, with Robert. Um, what, what was that back there? Robert just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, no, I don't know. I just felt like doing it. And besides, I knew if there's any trouble, I had you two big guys to back me up. And, and Otis, I honestly believe that Robert Crumb He's, he's a completely and utterly genuine human being. He, I think most of us have filters between our brains and our mouths. And I don't think that filtering process exists with Robert Crumb. The things that come out of his mind or his mouth or his pen, uh, it's, they're, they're raw, unedited. It's no kind of act. He's not doing it for shock value or anything else. I don't think he can help himself. And that's, frankly, that's his genius. They stayed in touch. They, neither one of them could remember each other's address. So they would keep sending, oh, will you, will you see Robert gets, gets this, these books, Ed would say to me. And Robert would write me, and he's made a mixtape of music that he thinks Ed Abbey would like. And, of course, I burned me a copy before I sent it on to Ed. Was this like the ragtime and string band music oh, yeah. that he would try to turn Abbey on to? Yeah. What did Abby think of that? Uh, as I've previously said, there was only one kind of music that Abby liked, and that was classical. He'd had ongoing health problems. In fact, in 1985, 
uh, when I went to pick him up at uh, the motel to walk him over to the bookstore for the si- the big signing, and there were, I mean, I think we sold 300 books that day. I would submit to you, 1985, that was probably more books than had ever been sold in the town of Moab in its history. Ed was uh, passing a kidney stone, and he was lying on his bed in agony. And I said, Ed, it's not worth it. We're just calling it off. He says, Ken, no, you don't. It isn't going to matter. I'm not going to feel any different lying here on the bed or sitting behind the chair at the bookstore. And he said, if I pass out, call the Moab hospital and have them shoot me up with, I forget what kind of painkiller. I used to know the name of it. but He said, just tell them to shoot me up with it. Like, that would work, Ed. <laughs> And that was his response. And he sat there for two hours and signed 300 copies of the book and talked to people while he was passing a kidney stone. He had a lot of problems internally. Um, Was a lot of it caused uh, from drinking? Yeah, he did in his later years. He did, uh, he'd have a beer now and then, but he certainly curtailed that. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, and Ed was a very private person, and he didn't share stuff like that. I I was in Hong Kong printing the Edward Abbey Western Wilderness Calendar that I did for 10 years. And it was already the Ides of March, and I got a telegram, regret to inform you, Edward Abbey has died. He, he wrote me less than a week before he died a p- postcard. He loved to write postcards. So does Robert Crumb, by the way. But Robert Crumb's handwriting is so teeny tiny, he can put a three-page letter on a postcard where Abby can't. His handwriting was much larger. He wrote me a postcard. I received it after he died. Ken, who's... Because I, I'd, I'd written him a letter expressing my concern about his health. He said, Ken, who's spreading these vicious lies about me? Or silly lies about me. And furthermore, why do you believe them? I'm fine. I'll see you in the, later in the spring. Love, Ed. And he was dead by the time I got it. The whole last year or more of his life, he was dying. I don't believe anyone knew that. When he was on the tour for The Fool's Progress in the fall of 1988... I've found this out since. All over the country, friends of his, even though people maybe hadn't seen for decades, he made appointments with them all to go see him. And what he was doing, and he did this to me in Salt Lake that fall, was saying goodbye, but he wasn't telling us. And I don't, I could be wrong. I don't think anyone knew. The only reason Ed Abbey ever wrote the sequel to the Monkey Ranch Gang, Hey Duke Lives, because he'd screwed up his health insurance at the University of Arizona and wasn't covered, and he got the biggest advance he'd ever gotten in his life on a book. Ed Abbey never made a lot of money off his books in his lifetime. They had modest printings and modest sales, but he got a big advance. Uh, He left a widow with two very, very young children. You know, he was only 62 years old when he died. His death had an impact far greater than just people that knew him personally. And yeah, there, if you want to know who Ed Abbey was, 
Read the 21 books. It's all in there. Yeah, he makes himself a character in those books, in the nonfiction particularly. And as you alluded to earlier, Otis, he can be very prickly. And he was. He didn't suffer fools lightly. Tell me, Ken, are you going to publish those silly calendars all your life? Meaning, when are you going to get real and actually do something with your life? Uh, he could be very, you know, if, if he was mad at you, by God, you knew it. There was a, a wake down at uh, Saguaro National Monument, uh, not too far from where he lived in Tucson. I managed to make it back in time from Hong Kong to, to get on another plane and fly to Tucson and attend that. And that's where, yeah, his kind of last will was, was read. And for that time period, at least, we everyone followed his instructions. Doug Peacock, the basis of the character of George Washington, Hey Duke, and uh, an old friend, one of his oldest friends, Jack Leffler, and his, uh, uh, I guess we'd be his brother-in-law, who was a doctor, the three of them, he was dying. He was in his little studio cabin behind the house. I wasn't there. And they put him in the back of his pickup and drove him out into the Sierra Pinacate uh, to bury him. <laughs> kind of like the scene in Little Big Man, it was a good day to die, <laughs> except it wasn't. So they bring him back in. He ends up bleeding out on his couch. They took him back out there, and his last words were, lots of rocks. They dug a big hole, threw him in, filled it up with dirt and rocks, put the couch on the top, and burned it. And to this day, that's where Ed Abbey is, out there somewhere in the Sierra Pinacati, in the the desert that he loved virtually his entire adult life. I've deliberately never gone there. Doug Peacock would take me anytime I want. We were discussing that earlier at the store, and when Doug and Andrea Peacock happened to walk in on us, um, and maybe I'll take him up on it this spring. Maybe enough time's gone by that I could deal with it. I appreciate you taking time to invite me into your home and share these stories. My pleasure, Otis. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Ken for inviting me into his home here in Salt Lake City. You can find out everything you need to know about Ken at kensandersbooks.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. 
Thanks for giving a damn.